All right, welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Pete Jaynes, founder and CEO of ShieldPay, the safest way to send and receive money. While the payment space may seem saturated, ShieldPay targets fraud prevention in high-value transactions, a space that is still susceptible to schemes. As a former rugby player, Pete understands the value that grit and diversity play in teams and has used this knowledge already in the past to create two other startups. He's a seasoned entrepreneur that knows failure can be the best learning experience if you choose to use it to your advantage. And I can't wait for you all to hear his story. Well, Pete, thank you so much for being on my show today. It's been a long time coming. It has. Uh, yeah, apologies for messing you around. It's uh, <laughs> trying, to, trying to find space in the diary. Um, but for stuff like this, is it, it's hard. But these are meetings I like doing. And talking about this kind of stuff is, uh, is, actually, is actually quite nice. That's great. Well, hopefully you say that at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the episode. So let's get started by talking about Shield Pay. If you can tell us kind of what it is and how you came up with the idea. Yeah, sure. So I'm here in merry old England, uh, where ShieldPay was founded. And so back in March, the company was formed in March of last year. And it was really off the back of a pretty nasty experience a friend of mine had uh, trying to sell his car on, on a classified site. So uh, classified sites are platforms such as sort of also Trader, Gumtree here in the UK, Craigslist over in the States, where these platforms do a very good job of connecting buyers and sellers together, but ultimately leave them to their own devices to try and find a way to transact. And he was introduced to this, this guy on, on Gumtree. And ultimately what happened was that the, the, this guy never had the intention of, of buying the car at all. And they, they met up on a Sunday, took the car for a test drive, and then unfortunately, when my friend parked up at his house to make this guy a cup of coffee, he came back outside and the guy had just stolen the car. Oh, wow. uh, and I guess my, my entrepreneurial brain kind of kicked in and, and just trying to understand how in 2016, this was last year, that two people who are connecting on, online who don't know each other still can't find a way to transact securely. So I actually called him and um, tried to understand how he thought the transaction would go well. When, when you were try and pay somebody you don't know, it's really limited how you could do that because there's, there's possibly cash. Uh, PayPal works up to a certain volume, but only really protects buyers and sending money directly out of your bank account. You know, that's where the majority of bank fraud actually happens. So mm-hmm. what, what we discovered is that there's a, um, a method that's used for really high ticket purchases, such as selling your house or, or an M&A transaction. It's called escrow. And the majority of people on the street don't really know what escrow is or, or when it's used, but you would have used it if you've ever bought or sold a house. So what we decided to do, and the, and the patents pending on this technology, is try to create a, an escrow payment between two people who don't know each other in 10 seconds for free. So this is taking a method that lawyers use where there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of upfront costs, and it's really time consuming and, and enabled two people who don't know each other anywhere in the world to create this escrow transaction. And, and that was the challenge. And basically, over the last year and a half, we've been honing that um, and positioning it, getting the messaging right. And ultimately, what we have now is one of the only sort of digital escrow facilities available anywhere. I'm protected when entering a transaction with someone I don't know. And that, in a nutshell, is, is where, where, the, where the idea came from. 
so this is really interesting because I'm renting an apartment right now in San Francisco for the next two months. And I actually tried to pay my subletter over Venmo and I got hit with a limit. So I couldn't even pay him the full amount. And so now on good faith, he's letting me pay him the remainder next week. But we, you know, that is a risk, right? Like luckily I live with his friends who are the roommates and I think they vetted me in person. But, you know, it's it's interesting like because I just experienced this in my regular life. And so I guess twofold, you know, do you ever think about how blockchain could be used to combat things like this? I know it's such a hot topic right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a your your, your case study with um with Venmo is an interesting one. So we're not after the friends and family type transactions. Mm. There's, there's you know you can name 101 of them. There's Venmo, Asimo, PayPal, where they do a really good really good job of getting money from A to B as quickly as possible, and that is great when paying people you trust or people you know. The issue is, is when you you use those systems to pay somebody you don't know, because ultimately the money isn't with you anymore, it's with them. So what what we are aiming at is not the sort of small volume friends and family type payments. So you're paying your brother back for the meal yesterday. I'd quite happily use any one of those systems to do that. I wouldn't trust them or be able to use them at all for, let's say, buying a £15,000 car from somebody I just met on Autotrader. Right. So there, there are specific cases where shill pay can be used, uh, but we're not trying to go after the really, really cluttered friends and family type transactions, which you find on Venmo and, and, and PayPal. Right. Uh, okay. And just to answer the blockchain um, question. So we do use elements of blockchain here at shill pay, but if you think of a, a peer-to-peer transaction, there has to be a, it's subjective whether or not I agree that the transaction has been completed or not. So smart contracts work well when then when there's a definitive moment when a transaction has been completed. So let's say I wanted to use blockchain uh, and a smart contract to, to buy you know, a stock on the, uh, on the NASDAQ when it hits a certain value. That's a, a predetermined contract between myself and a value that, that is hit that no mm. one can argue. The issue with peer-to-peer payments is that how would blockchain be able to know when a successful peer-to-peer transaction has actually been been completed? Mm. It, it requires a human element to say, okay, I am happy that the transaction has gone the way I wanted it to. I'm now happy to release it. So there, there still needs a human in, human interface to this for, for it mm-hmm. to work. So yeah, there's... Smart contracts are fantastic um, in, in peer-to-peer that they're, they're slightly limited. No, I think that's really interesting. And though, so obviously, you know, you sound like you're from the UK, but do you see a benefit to growing a payments-related company like Shield Pay in London? The talent, the talent pool for fintech in London is is very high, which is a great thing. I mean, there's, you know, we'd like to sort of wave the flag and say that we're the sort of financial capital of the world. I think there's a few people who would, would disagree, but it's for such a small place, such a concentrated group of people working within a specific industry is quite rare. There's certain verticals that the UK does very well when it comes to tech, and you know, fintech is one of them. But what ha- tends to happen is that UK entities tend to internationalize what they do relatively quickly. Um, if we were based in California, let's say, there's a large enough market around us for us to not have to worry or think about internationalizing what we do till much further down the line. So we have already incorporated into the US. Uh, we've also mm. done that um, out of Singapore because it feels like what most companies do in the UK is use the UK as a, as a kind of a testing ground or you bedding in the technology and then the hope of scaling it out into the US and beyond. It's a, a great place for fintech. It, most companies in different verticals tend to, tend to, to move out just because the opportunities and the talent pool is, 
high for different types of verticals. But yeah, specifically for fintech, it, it's one of the best, best places in the world to do what we do. Yes, definitely. And I know that you're part of the Barclays Accelerator as well, like Jonathan from Simudine who introduced us. And so since you are also a, you know, a serial founder, did you see the benefit? What was the benefit of going through an accelerator like Techstars for ShieldPay? ShieldPay is my third startup. And I, I arrogantly thought that accelerators were for guys, guys and girls much younger than me. It was their first sort of start. But what became really apparent when speaking to the guys at Techstars who, who sort of run the Barclays Accelerator here in the UK is that the bar was set so high that it was really great being surrounded by nine were super ambitious, had great ideas. And you kind of feed off that um, because one of the things with being an entrepreneur or, or a founder is that it's quite, it's quite lonely. You have to get out there and you do spend an awful lot of time away from your desk and, uh, you know, meeting investors or meeting mentors. And it, it's quite time consuming and, and energy sapping. The good thing about accelerators is that, is that it's all brought to you. And so you, I think I was, I was looking through my calendar back in February this year when the accelerator was on. I think there was, I think it was 35 meetings in a week. And to, to run that diary of your own would be exhausting. And the fact mm-hmm. that we're all within sort of a 10 meter radius of your desk where you were meeting mentors and VCs and um, you know people within the industry, it, it was grueling, but you do more in a, such a short period of time than, than most startups can do on their own. So yeah, I, I think I arrogantly had a very misinformed view of, of accelerators, <laughs> but we had an amazing experience and we went from a, a team of two to 15 now, uh, raised funds funding got FCA regulated all within a really short period of time. And for most, you know, for most companies that would take an awful lot longer than that. Yes. I guess it's aptly named accelerator for that reason. (laughs) Now I'd love to focus more on kind of what you were doing before shield pay and we'll start close to the beginning. So where did you grow up? Where are you from in the UK? For people outside of the UK, London seems to be the epicenter of most things, but I grew up just outside of, of London in a, a small little village near a town, called, a town called Marlow. So if you followed the Thames out of London, it was a, it's a small little town outside of there. So I, I have been close to London my whole life. Really where I thought I'd end up is on a rugby pitch. And so <laughs> that dream ended in around about sort of 20, 21 years old when a big injury happened, but also I realized I wasn't good enough. Um, it just, uh, so I adjusted my sort of train of thought and where I'd possibly end up and I actually became a, a sports agent for a while. So I uh, went to a, a big media and uh, sports management company called IMG, which was started mm-hmm. out in the US, but is a, is a pretty global beast and um, looked after sort of commercial rights and basically the interests outside of uh, sport for some, you know, for, for sportsmen when it was golf and tennis primarily. But I think what I realized pretty early on is that it was not the most creative industry in the world. Mm-hmm. Really what you was you know every sort of four years for big events you were changing which athletes were involved in as as ambassadors for certain sponsors and it, it just became a um kind of a merry-go-round and it's still the same types of promotions happening now uh, that happened sort of 10 years ago it's nothing's much nothing much has changed and I fell into tech in many ways I was really introduced to tech through what we found was happening in the media industry in the US. So these were a big seismic shift in how big media entities were creating content. So this was 2000 and about 2006 to 2008, where there were big, big media agencies in in sports, such as ESPN, CNN, where they were paying editors large amounts of money to create content and then hold people within 
the walled garden of, let's say, ESPN. And what was happening running in parallel to that were small sort of startup media agencies that became aggregators. And what that enabled these, these smaller guys to do was basically pull in media content from everywhere and position it in a way that the user chose what they like to see rather than just having a set volume of content from, from an ESPN. And this is when advertising was still sort of there or thereabouts in terms of you know, banner ads and the ability to make money from platforms. So what we did, uh, we mirrored a couple of startups in the US, but for a very specific UK sort of Commonwealth audience. So these were sports mm-hmm. like uh, soccer, cricket, rugby union, sort of sports that the US market doesn't really care too much about, but are, but are massive here and, and took in RSS feeds and MRSS feeds from thousands of different sources and enabled the users to customize a, a news feed basically via tags. So this was before sort of Twitter and all this kind of stuff. But the, let's say I was a, a user of Sportpost. I told the system that I liked Roger Federer, Arsenal Football Club, England Rugby, it then created a real-time newsfeed for me based off my interests um, mm-hmm. rather than just giving me what the editors of ESPN had come up with that day. And it did really, really well really quickly. And it was acquired in a, a short period of time. It's sort of 15 to 18 months. It was a bit, a bit of a whirlwind. And I guess from, from that point in time, I was, I was pretty much hooked. I love creating something from nothing. And um, I think I sort of stumbled into my my chief assets and what I'm good at is sort of team building the early years and and sort of mucking in and creating something from nothing. And so yeah, I was I was effectively hooked into tech. And um back in sort of 2008, 2009, it was still the tech scene in the UK was was there, but it was still pretty fledgling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were none of my friends had ever done it before. I had no real case studies for for British entrepreneurs who had really nailed it when it came to tech i mean we've got sir richard branson and dyson and a few others but tech was still really early on uh nothing like what was happening in the valley so it was kind of a it's been a 10-year kind of journey for me as an entrepreneur and seeing the ups seeing the downs the second startup that came after that was was geared towards sort of social commerce and we were trying to show that through this is again pre pre instagram but people were people's own social networks were growing exponentially. So Twitter was on the rise. Facebook was on the rise, doing really well. So the ability for individuals to influence the people around them was, was growing every day. Mm-hmm. So what if, what if you could create an advertising network that hooked into individuals' own networks and, and basically rewarded them for promoting products to their, to their networks? And it seems, seems obvious now with Instagram that, you know, the big the big ambassadors are doing that on a daily basis. But um, this was 2010, where, you know, the whole ambassador or brand ambassador via a social network was really new. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we did, we, you know, it, it started off, it started off well. And I guess what I learned from the whole experience was that it's really important to find a product market fit before really scaling out. So we, um, mm. in, a, in a, what seemed like a, seemed great at the time but actually we we almost raised too much money so there was a an inherent pressure on us to drive revenue to to really scale out what we had achieved and unfortunately we hadn't really got the right product market fit to do that yet so we started making silly mistakes and partnering up with people purely for revenue purposes rather than the benefits to 
to customers. And we didn't put the customer at the at the forefront of everything that we did. The journey for me has been, you know, really up and down. And I guess I learned more about myself from the the failure more than the success on, you know, what's actually required to build a successful company. I mean, we were really lucky with the first one. And I guess there was an, you know, an arrogance, um, a naivety to the second one that became pretty evident the, the more money we raised. So it was a really painful experience for sort of two, two and a bit years of my life. But I think off the back of that, Shield Pay, well, for a start, Shield Pay wouldn't exist without that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't, I wouldn't have hired the people that I have without knowing who not to hire. Every kind of touch point I have with Shield Pay is, it's, it feels um, not predestined. That's not the right word. It's more that it's, I know the pitfalls before they, before they happen now because I've yeah. seen, seen them firsthand. And I don't think you can, you can kind of read that stuff in a book. You have to be, you know, have to be, have firsthand experience of that sort of thing to really understand what's likely to happen if you make that decision. And I needed the failure before for Shilpay to get where it is. And um, a strange way to think about failure, but it is really one of the chief reasons why we're doing so well. No, I, th- I think that's really interesting and pertinent, especially in regard to the fundraising. I haven't really talked about this on the show, but I have in my personal life with some founders. And I, I find it interesting that you say we raise too much money because sometimes people think, oh, we'll raise a lot of money and we'll never need to raise again because we'll just end up being profitable by the next round. And so what kind of advice would you give people from that experience with the level of expectations that come with raising money? And why do you think founders necessarily look at the fundraising process in this skewed way where more money means necessarily more success? I mean, I I think there's uh, different reasons why people see high valuations as a positive thing. One is that it externally validates you to the outside world that there's something about you that's of interest um, that you should look at that there's something of value here but un- unfortunately if you aren't in a position where people love your product by the time that you've raised that amount of money you end up spending so much money reverse engineering what you're what you've done to try and get the product market fit that ultimately that money puts so much pressure on you to start like we said sort of laying in revenue streams that ultimately don't make sense to the consumer. So, the, I mean, the, the the experience I had is that so we didn't take an external dollar into Shield Pay until we knew where this product was going, whether consumers saw the need for what we were doing. We did a um, a small check from Techstars, but ultimately, bootstrapping means that you focus on all the stuff that's most important. You don't think about PR, you don't think about marketing. You, all you can think about is the customer and their experience with shield pay because you don't have money to do anything else. So it, it it's a double-edged sword. Raising money is great. It gives you the runway to really make mistakes, but unfortunately it also puts so much pressure on you to, to be a success very quickly. There are 101 cases for when it has worked and they required a big level of funding to get to where they needed to be. But there's also a graveyard of companies that raised so much money and then the pressure on the founders or the, the management team to do certain things prematurely that they ultimately burn through that cash trying to get to where they should have been very early, a lot earlier than that. So, you know, you hear success stories about Facebook, you nailed it straight away, raised a ton of cash and they went off to the races, but that's not normal. You know, the 99.9% of other startups who have to you know, really bust a gut to get their first customer. It's you learn more about getting your first customer than you do the next the next sort of hundred. So yeah, I think what I learned from that is that there's great 
telling the outside world you raise loads of money, but ultimately if you fail, it doesn't matter anyway. I would not take an external pound until I knew that what I was building was going in the right direction because ultimately you're taking on other people's money and there's a financial responsibility to look after that or and, and grow it for them, uh, which means you start making decisions that you wouldn't normally have to worry about. Well, it's funny because you sound extremely wise now, this being your third company. And you've mentioned, I think a couple of times about the ego that you used to have. And, and do you think it's simply because you were younger and you thought I had some success, everything's going to come easier to me now? Or do you think I, that's just something that you had to personally go through? I really needed to see failure face on to really understand the best way to live in this strange world of tech that we're in. Because yeah, when when you when you come out all single dancing from a from an exit, you do feel invincible. And you sometimes that's great. I mean, uh, investors love confidence. They love, they, they're backing people that feel they can create big companies but there needs to be sat alongside that someone on the other shoulder telling you well slow down wait a minute you know make sure that you've got everything aligned before you jump headfirst into things and I think I'm I'm pretty balanced now I've got as they say a, a chip on both shoulders now um <laughs> I, do, I do think everyone not everyone should should uh, experience failure because it sucks but it's not necessarily a bad thing either no i think it goes back to grit failure is one of the ways to build grit i think you know a lot of other people have grit from early childhood experiences that might have been difficult or, or things that teach you about perseverance i think sports to me, I grew up playing sports as well. And I think especially a team sport like rugby or I played lacrosse is very much humbly in the sense that you're not necessarily the best on the team or you can only do so much as one person. I think that taught me a lot. Um, it sounds like rugby was pretty much a big tenant of your professional and personal life as well. And, and you talked about team building now. And I'm wondering, do you get that level of team building simply from rugby or do you find it's something that your parents instilled in you when you were younger? I don't think I'd be as good at what I do without without having played sport i think there's a general feeling when you're on a pitch with so rugby's a 15 man game that this isn't all me there's no way that we can beat 15 other guys with just myself you know where your strengths are you know where your weaknesses are and you know you build a team around you who complements that that is sport in a nutshell you, you would if you had 15 players of all all the same type all the same skill set you know that's easy to beat the skill set and the the talent for shield pay the caliber is very very high and i'm not trying to build or, or sorry, I'm not trying to hire people that act the same way as me or think the same way as me, because then you you know you start you miss out on opportunities because you you think the same. But also, yes. it's it's so important to have that diversity in the room because yes. it starts getting very stale otherwise. So I'm not saying that all successful entrepreneurs need to be sportsmen, but I don't think I'd be in the position I am now without it. I think to me, it's more about like what you said. You know, having a team, you don't necessarily especially get to pick who's on your team, and I think it taught me a lot of formative years that, you know, being different from yourself when you do have a lot of ego and especially if you're hyper competitive is extremely important. There's this camaraderie that you feel and it's a lot like a startup in the sense that you're fighting to win. And I think at least for me, I I can understand why there are certain parallels that, that you bring up that make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, you've got to leave your ego at the front door when it, when it comes to this stuff and Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to have absolute confidence in yourself that you can you can do the job that's required of you. But you also have to, when the chips are down, bring everyone, you know, pick other people up and get stuck in. And I think that, like you mentioned, grit, I don't think it's necessarily just about yourself. It's much more the perseverance to, as a unit, tackle challenges head on and get through them. Over the last 10 years of doing this, I can spot people who are prepared to go the extra mile for others and for the for the team. And that 
is especially at a startup of such a small size at, at 15 you need that in the room if there's uh, people are out there for just sort of career enhancement and and looking after the self, themselves then everyone is affected by that i can spot grit very well now and i think that's um yeah that's that's, that's a great word and i'd uh, it's i'd put it as probably one two and three and when i'm what i'm looking for in in people joining shield pay where do you see the next five years me personally i think there's still a lot to learn um i'm learning stuff every day the beauty of this industry that we're in is not it moves so fast that to be naive enough to think you've got all the answers so you wouldn't you'd never be able to be naive enough to think you have all the answers so for me personally is i'm just enjoying the learning experience so much uh, from from a team's point of view i think what's great about great about shield pay is that the mission is something that people can really get behind and we're trying to eliminate peer-to-peer fraud um it's a it's a massive problem it affects a lot of people anyone who's been defrauded knows how much it sucks and we don't want that to happen mm-hmm. to anyone else ever again and it's really nice knowing your place in the world so we're not competing with the likes of you know paypal venmo asimo we we have a very nice niche for ourselves and so long as we focus on that and become world-class at what we do and create a platform that people love i think the future's pretty limit uh, limitless for us it's just sticking together and getting through the hard times because they're always going to happen, especially with finance. And, you know, I think for, for Shield Pay as a unit, I can see nothing but success for us, which is really nice feeling. Well, we went to New York for a week um, to do to set up the company and, and work with some partners in the US. And it didn't need me in the room in London to function. And mm-hmm. that's such a nice position to be in. There's enough talent in the room that it doesn't require some sort of circus master cracking the whip everyone's fully motivated knows what they're doing and it it was such a nice experience coming back knowing that the the company had pushed on without me having to be there and that was one of the first times we've done that so it's bigger than me now which was hopefully that continues and it would it's always a sign of a good team that that it's not it's greater than the sum of its parts It's, it's such a nice experience being here now well, congratulations thus far on your success. And we are going to end now with some fun questions. So what is another London startup that you really love? Besides our friends at Simuldine, there's a few. I mean, there's a few few that people know about. I think TransferWise have, have done a great job and they're they're doing a great job of flying the, the flying the flag for the UK fintech scene. They're, I mean, the accelerator that we just went through, there's a, a great team called Flux who are basically digitizing the world's receipts. Monzo is doing a great job. There's a there's a good pool of talent here now, and I think there'll be a, some some breakaway successes. I think people should you know really really look at the the textiles Barclays accelerator, which uh, the next cohort starts again in in January. I've already seen or heard of a few companies that are that have been earmarked for that, and they they seem really really interesting. So yeah, that that, that that'd be a good place to start of uh, seeing what happens through, through textiles next year. Yeah, definitely. And so if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I mean, here in the UK, I mean, I kind of grew up with you know, Richard Branson being the pinnacle for an entrepreneur success. And it was when I was thinking about doing doing what we do there weren't many great case studies of entrepreneurs who had really you know been a huge global success and i think for him, for me it's just kind of meeting your idol and interviewing him and seeing how his world has changed from starting doing what he was doing at 16 to 
than doing what he does now. I think that's um, that'd be a good interview for me. Yeah, I agree, and that's a new one. It's it's funny because he's done so much innovation in different areas, and so I think that's a rare quality to have in entrepreneurship. Like you know, from just just so many different industries, he's had his uh, had his hand in. Yeah, and I think if I mean if he if he answered that question, he'd probably say that you know those those successes are there because he hired much cleverer people than him around him who knew the space better than better than he ever could. He's replicated that across multiple verticals and he's he's had his own his own failures which he's learned from. But yeah, just just seeing how his how he sees an entrepreneurial life from over a 50 year period is really rare. Well thank you for that and, and thanks for being on my show today, Pete. It was great having you. Thanks for having me on man. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out our Medium account at 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.